Hey everybody, Tyler Smith here. Uh, before the episode kicks off, just wanted to remind everybody that More Than One Lesson is brought to you by Faith Life TV, which is a new streaming service that is actually still in beta. Uh, Faith Life features a number of documentaries, a number of movies, and just general Christian resources that I think you would uh, get a great deal out of. Um, and uh, I, what was I recently watching? Uh, I was recently watching a series called The Unseen Realm uh, that talks about uh, looking at the Bible in the context in which it was written um, and then using that to try to make sense out of certain passages that these days we don't really understand that well. So uh, so check that out. Uh, that is at Faith Life TV. But then also, if you go through more than one lesson, so if you go to morethanonelesson.com and click on the Faith Life TV uh, link, then you can actually get the first month for free. So uh, please do that. Uh, it is a very much a worthwhile service, and I think you guys would get a lot out of it. Uh, we are also sponsored by DigiCycle Me, which is a, a service for um, people with uh, really any kind of ministry or website. Um, they help us out, and what they, what they do is they... Uh, they can help you to maximize your uh, social media presence. Um, so they help uh, me out both at More Than One Lesson and also Battleship Pretension. They help us out with uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, they're a really great service, and you can actually find a link to that website through morethanonelesson.com as well. So uh, just wanted to remind you all of that. Uh, do che uh, check out these services. I think you would get a great deal out of them. So thank you uh, for listening and on with the episode. Hi everyone, this is More Than One Lesson. I am Reed Lackey. Normally you would hear me as one of your co-hosts along with Josh and Robert, but this week Tyler asked if I would be willing to guest host uh, as an opportunity to tell you about a movie that I've been wanting to talk about on the show for quite some time actually. I've been trying to convince a few of my friends to watch it, and so I'm hoping now to convince all of you to watch it as well. It's a film that's very important and special to me, has been ever since I was a little child and has been very influential to me in a number of ways. Um, so we'll get into that in just a few minutes. But the film that I'm talking about is 1977's epic six and a half hour Life of Christ presentation directed by Franco Zeffirelli called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, some of you may have heard of this film before, and some of you may have never heard of it. If you think that you've never heard of it, I would venture to say that you've probably seen some images from the film represented in either Christian devotional art or uh, perhaps on social media somewhere. This film gets aped often uh, and, and images get lifted from it. 
But it's a film that I saw when I was very, very young. And I know automatically uh, there can be a lot of uh, stigma surrounding a film like this. Uh, Number one, it's six and a half hours long. So I recognize that that can be daunting. But hey, I mean, that's less than any two of the Lord of the Rings installments. So it is doable. Uh, But uh, the length is, uh, is an obstacle for some people. Also, the fact that it is based on the life of Christ. If, if, if you're like me, you reach a certain point where you're like, okay, I, I, I have seen enough of this story. I know this story very, very well. How many different things can someone do with it? What different approach are they going to take? I myself have seen a variety of different versions of the life of Christ that range anywhere from the dramatically interpretive to the <laughs> almost painfully literal where they will say, like, I, I saw one rendition called The Gospel of John, where the text of the screenplay was literally the text of the gospel. Uh, I think the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark follow the same suit. Um, the Jesus film, which I think is largely based on the Gospel of Luke, also follows that pattern where the text of the screenplay is basically the text of the scriptures. So uh, I, I know that there's a lot of versions and renditions of the Jesus story out there. But possibly because this one came to me so early in my life, I saw it when I was probably four or five years old, but because it came into my life so early and has stayed with me for so long, I still consider this to be the best one I have ever seen. And uh, there's a number of other things that I'm going to talk about as we get into it a little deeper, but it still holds a very special place in my heart. In fact, for a long time, I used to cite this as my very favorite movie of all time. I still think it's probably one of the most influential films I've ever seen on me personally. Um, I frequently cite The Exorcist as my favorite film uh, now, uh, and it is, but this film still holds uh, a tremendously special place in my heart, and it's still in my top five. I don't think it'll ever dip any lower than that. So I want to talk to you about why, and hopefully by the end of it, you'll understand why I wanted to talk about it and maybe even want to give the film a chance yourself. So um, first of all, a few little uh, factoids about it just in general. It was, of course, made in 1977. Uh, Lou Grade was the producer of it. Um, Actually, uh, I don't know if this story is apocryphal or not, but uh, supposedly spawned from a comment that the Pope made, uh, Pope Paul VI, supposedly spoke to Lou Grade about a film that he had made about Moses and said, I hope you'll make a, a film about uh, the life of Jesus that will be just as good. And so Lou Grade set out to do that very thing. He hired a devout Roman Catholic uh, named Franco Zeffirelli. Zeffirelli attempted to, they wanted to make a very ecumenical work, ecumenical meaning that it would appeal to a broad uh, a broad variety of denominations and specific viewpoints within the Christian faith. And they also wanted it to be uh, appealing to non-believers in the sense that it would be well-constructed, dramatically rich, that it would be understandable, that it wouldn't be a narrative that would only have a very finite appeal. They wanted to make, if they were going to make a, a production at this level, they wanted it to appeal to as many people as possible. And I think that they have succeeded. I think Uh, Being a believer, I'm obviously going to be quite biased about this, but I would venture to say, as a film lover, that there is quite a bit here, uh, even for non-believers, to to latch on to in terms of character, dramatic tension, uh, just the construction of certain scenes. Again, we'll get into that in in just a few minutes. But 
the production, I, I, I think they filmed for somewhere in the neighborhood of eight months. Uh, the budget on it ranges. I've heard figures as high as $45 million, uh, and as low as $18 million. All I know for certain is that it was incredibly successful. It did make all of its money back and almost double uh, what, what it made uh, or what it cost to make it. So it was an incredibly successful production. Again, Franco Zeffirelli directed it. He is someone, uh, if you're in your late 20s or early 30s, you might have experienced uh, seeing his version of Romeo and Juliet in grade school, perhaps in high school. It was the preferred version for a number of years, uh, also starring Olivia Hussey, who plays Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Jesus of Nazareth. And I had also seen his film version of Hamlet, which stars Mel Gibson and Glenn Close uh, from the 90s. Uh, other than that, I haven't seen very many of his films. He, he made a film about St. Francis of Assisi that's pretty good, and uh, and obviously Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. But this film, Jesus of Nazareth, is, is my main touchstone with him and with his work. As I said, I saw the film when I was about four or five years old. Obviously, being that young... A lot of things went over my head. Uh, it wasn't until I reached probably seven or eight that I finally began to sort of understand some of the connections that they were making. But a lot of it made sense to me, even at a young age. Some of that was the culture in which I grew up, so I had some cultural relevance to understand what meaning was being communicated through some of the individual scenes. Uh, but also it's a very clear, direct story. I think uh, to the attentive viewer, it's got a lot of uh, a lot of interesting takes on certain scenes that uh, some of them directly lifted out of the text of the scriptures and some of them uh, in surprising ways changed to produce an even, I think, greater dramatic effect than if they had stayed faithful to the scriptures. So when I saw it at first, I enjoyed it immensely. But as time went on, I began to realize that something subconscious was happening as I was watching the film because I also grew up in a very conservative religious household, so I was hearing the stories that the Bible was telling week in, week out in church and in children's church, in you know midweek services, kids camp, all of these different places, not to mention at home. So I heard all of these different stories. When I saw Jesus of Nazareth, something clicked that showed me, hey, these are the stories I'm familiar with, but they've made some changes to them. And the changes are interesting. Some of the changes are uh, just things that people say that they didn't say in the Bible as I read it. Uh, some of them are changes to where they've blended certain stories or certain characters together. And it was interesting because I began to register, even at a young age, that you could do that to stories. So basically, Jesus of Nazareth was my first an earliest understanding of adaptive cinema, like where you take a work of literature um, or some uh, piece of either an essay, something. You take something and you adapt it into film. Jesus of Nazareth was my first sort of exposure to that idea and uh, in a really profound way has influenced and in some ways measured every adaptation that I've ever seen since then. And... Uh, I want to go through a few more just technical aspects of it. Uh, Zeffirelli, of course, the director, but the screenplay was by Anthony Burgess, who was uh, most famous for writing the novel A Clockwork Orange that Stanley Kubrick based his film on. Anthony Burgess was an accomplished novelist, screenwriter. Uh, he brings a pedigree to this script that really elevates it, I think, above most other Life of Christ 
productions, definitely over most Life of Christ productions, but I think even over most biblical adaptations. This script is really strong. It's strong on character. It's strong on pacing. It's uh, very tightly constructed. There are moments of foreshadowing uh, that are paid off later. It's not just, oh, well, that was that story. Now we move on to the next one. Uh, So many of the biblical narratives that I've seen can feel very episodic. But this one feels less episodic because there are characters that show up that are introduced who the real crux of their story doesn't come until a couple of hours later in the film. But Burgess and, by extension, Zeffirelli took the time to infuse them in this story in a way that was more organic. Uh, One of the best examples of that that I can think of off the top of my head are in the characters of the Centurion and of Mary Magdalene. The Centurion uh, is played by Ernest Borgnine. We'll get to the rest of the cast in a second, but he's played by Ernest Borgnine, and he appears early on in the film as the Centurion who's asking Jesus to heal his servant. So that happens, but then that Centurion is also present at the crucifixion, which adds an interesting layer of drama and dramatic tension to the fact that Uh, Jesus had helped him heal his servant, but now he's performing his duty, his job, uh, which involves executing this man. And uh, the film doesn't spend too much time on that, but it it is an example of a good way in which they've united certain characters to produce uh, a thematic connotation that I really enjoy a lot. The other is with the character of Mary Magdalene, as I'd mentioned. Mary Magdalene shows up for the very first time. Uh, She is uh, a prostitute, which, uh, biblically speaking, is not accurate, but um, historically she had a reputation for being a prostitute. So she, she is a prostitute, and she hears about Jesus of Nazareth. Then, a few scenes later, we see her present in the crowd, at the feeding of the 5,000. She's distant. She doesn't interact with anyone, but she's present there and has an emotional moment by witnessing this feeding of the 5,000. Then, several scenes after that, she becomes the one who enters into the Pharisee's home and washes Jesus' feet. And at that point, Jesus and she uh, have a moment. She becomes one of his followers. After that, uh, he forgives her and, and changes her life. And then she becomes a disciple, culminating in something that I'll talk about uh, probably towards the end of this episode, uh, in the big reveal to the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they really do a lot with the character of Mary Magdalene in some effective ways. They, they bring her in not only substitute her for other biblical moments, but just the positioning of her at the feeding of the 5,000 struck me as so clever and and as a really good example of how somebody might have heard about Jesus first and then seen him from a distance and then actually directly interacted with him and then becoming one of his followers. So it was an interesting character progression. And she's not the only one. They do several others uh, like that throughout the film. But uh, all of that attributed back to just an absolutely brilliant script by Anthony Burgess. I want to call out just a, a couple of my favorite lines before we move on. Uh, something that is repeated several times in the narrative, most specifically by John the Baptist, is the line, Before kingdoms change, men must change. It's a powerful, you would almost expect it to be a Bible verse. It's not, but um, but it has a sort of a uh, an epic scriptural quality to it, uh, a proverbial quality, if you will. 
the last sort of screenplay quote that I want to call out um, in this section is a line that there's a moment where Judas is trying to convince Jesus to stop being so antagonistic towards the Pharisees, and he's talking about one Pharisee in particular, and he says, this man has one of the most open minds in all of the Sanhedrin. Was it wise to discourage him? To which Jesus looks back to Judas and says, open your eyes, Judas, not your mind. Open your eyes and your heart. And it's just... It's a really uh, affecting uh, idea to me, an affecting sentiment uh, to me. And uh, so these, th- it is a great script, all of that. You may not have been very impressed with those lines. Um, I certainly was, but I consider it to be a really uh, powerful and uh, impactful script, both in its structure and in the individual lines of dialogue where they choose to divert from the biblical text. Um, it's really great. So um, I have to talk about this cast it has, as many Life of Christ productions and biblical stories do, it has an all-star cast, but uh, I have never seen uh, such an acting pedigree as as this film has. It includes eight Academy Award winners for acting. In addition to that, seven Academy Award nominees for acting, so 15 in total uh, recognized by the Academy. In addition to that, uh, four Golden Globe winners as well. So it's got a strong pedigree, almost a, who, a who's who of actors from the 70s uh, who were either up and coming or who were um, you know, already very famous at the time. Uh, I, I mean, just going down the list, I'm on IMDb right now. Uh, you've got Anne Bancroft plays Mary Magdalene, as I mentioned. The Centurion's played by Ernest Borgnine. Uh, Ian McShane, uh, who's come to significant prominence in later years because of Deadwood and Pirates of the Caribbean and now American Gods. Uh, he plays Judas. Uh, Christopher Plummer plays uh, Herod Antipas. Uh, I mentioned Olivia Hussey plays uh, the mother of Jesus. Michael York plays John the Baptist. You have Laurence Olivier playing Nicodemus. You have Anthony Quinn playing Caiaphas. Uh, Rod Steiger playing Pontius Pilate. Ian Holm from Alien and from the Lord of the Rings series playing a Pharisee named Zara. You've got Stacy Keach, James Earl Jones, Donald Pleasance, Fernando Ray, Ralph Richardson, Peter Ustinoff. Um, if you're a fan of just iconic actors of the 70s, those names uh, in quick succession, will mean something to you. If you're not, don't feel bad. Uh, It's just a powerhouse cast. It's got uh, a significant number of really heavy hitters. And one of the things that I loved about it, uh, they did in the production, because the budget was going to be so big, the studios did try to get Zeffirelli to cast based on star power. As a matter of fact, Al Pacino and Dustin Hoffman were both considered for the role of Jesus uh, because they they were looking for star power. But Zeffirelli made a very intentional decision not to cast someone on the basis of their star power alone. He wanted to cast people who, based on their interpretation of the character and their acting ability on its own, um, could deliver the performance that he hoped to get out of it, which is why uh, you have James Earl Jones, uh, who is a phenomenal actor, as we all know, playing a role as minor as one of the three wise men. Uh, but you have a relatively uh, lesser-known actor named James Farentino playing a role as large as Simon Peter. Now, James Farentino, it should be noted, did get nominated for an Emmy uh, for his performance as Peter in, in this production, uh, and he's outstanding. It's, 
it's mesmerizing. It's it's a really powerful performance. But uh, but yeah, the, the, I, I could just talk and talk and talk about the cast and their uh, their general acting <laughs> pedigree. It, it's pretty it's pretty outstanding. Uh, just visit IMDb and scroll down the list. It is uh, it's really impressive. But what I wanted to uh, most discuss, uh, so for the last 10 or 15 minutes here, uh, what I want to spend some time talking about are some of my favorite moments. But specifically, the reason I wanted to talk about it on this show is because when adapting, uh, well, when adapting any book uh, anymore, any popular franchise, be they comic books, uh, The Hunger Games, Harry Potter, whatever it is, there can be two sides of opinion on how an adaptation should take place. There are those who I would I would say they lean more towards uh, textual reverence, where they want moments in the book to be translated almost word for word or beat for beat to moments in the film. And then there are others who would be more in, more open to interpretation, where they would say the text is an opportunity to launch a different telling of this story, a different version of this story. Um, and fans go back and forth in in what they want in general. Uh, I think the most vocal fans would pop- probably be the ones who were more the literalists who want what happened in the text of the book to appear on the screen in some version. That is most especially true of Christians with biblical adaptations. In fact, this film, uh, I'm only going to mention this in passing, but this film came under a lot of heavy criticism early on in its uh, in its production uh, from Bob Jones of Bob Jones University, came under a lot of criticism because the uh, Zeffirelli and producer Lou Grade had mentioned that they wanted to uh, display Jesus as a man. They wanted to portray the human side of Jesus. And several fundamentalists uh, led by Bob Jones took that to mean that they were going to pretend Jesus wasn't divine, that they were going to minimize or completely eliminate the divine nature, and uh, and they took to boycotting the film and boycotting the production, never having seen it, of course, um, as is sometimes the case. And, uh, and so there was a lot of controversy about that. I bring that up only to illustrate that it's very important to people who hold certain stories as sacred, that adaptations of those stories be done in uh, in a reverent way uh, or in a way that is faithful to the spirit, if not to the actual text of, of the material. And this is a great example. As I said, this is my standard of adaptive film. Uh, it's still sort of my fir- it was my first exposure to that and is still sort of the benchmark for that to me. But I think that there's some great things in this film, great examples of how you can take an extra biblical moment, something that did not occur in the scriptures, uh, or something that you blend together with other moments that happened in the scriptures and produce almost a greater impact than simply hearing the story itself or, or communicating the message of a story in a way that is uh, as impactful, if not more impactful, uh, than just flatly hearing the narrative on its own. Obviously, I believe the scriptures have a profound power. They've had a profound power on my life, a uh, profound effect on me. But uh, let me just give you, let me go ahead and dive into a few examples and stop qualifying it. So I want to talk about um, four or five moments here, depending on what time we have. The first one. There is a moment about an hour and 45 minutes into the film, uh, maybe an hour and a half, when Jesus, as a young boy, has a bar mitzvah. Now, uh, of course, bar mitzvah is in the Jewish tradition, but the only problem is bar mitzvahs were not even practiced until the uh, 15th century. 
So it is impossible that Jesus would have had a bar mitzvah. Um, this was made a, this was made known to Anthony Burgess and to uh, Franco Zeffirelli, but Zeffirelli pushed for this moment to be included in the film, and uh, I, I'm glad he did because it's one of my favorite moments in the movie. Here's what happens: Jesus is at his bar mitzvah. He reads a text of the scripture. There is a celebration. His uh, father Joseph is proud of him. Um, everything is uh, is moving the way that it is supposed to move, um, and then. The Romans come in and begin to steal the bread from out of people's houses in the town. They begin to uh, bully the people nearby. And a group of religious zealots uh, begin to try to combat these Roman soldiers, uh, almost to the degree uh, where a fight almost breaks out and these zealots almost get killed right there on the moment. Uh, they're stopped, and the Romans leave them alone, uh, basically considering them just peons, just mere ants uh, to be ignored and not to be bothered or trifled with. So then the Roman soldiers leave and the zealots begin to weep and begin to have a fit and begin to beg and cry out to God for help because uh, their, their food has been stolen. Uh, they are living under the thumb of this political regime. They are uh, so broken and so upset and so disturbed that they feel God is not watching them. They feel God is absent from them. And uh, so they cry this out to the heavens. And uh, the moment goes on for two or three minutes. And then as they're crying out, how long, O oh Lord, must we wait for you to help us? How long must we wait? Uh, from the distance... In the crowd, the young Jesus simply steps forward and watches. He doesn't say anything. Uh, the music, of course, swells, but uh, Jesus does not interact. He does not go and, and comfort this person. He simply watches. And that moment had a powerful effect on me because I registered that while this man is crying out, Lord, how long do we have to wait for you to help us? The moment is, the in the interpretation of the moment is clear that not only is help uh, imminent, but help is present, that Jesus himself is there in that moment while the man is crying out broken and humbled uh, for God's assistance. Jesus is watching him. So clearly not in the text of the scriptures. It's impossible for that to have happened uh, in real life because bar mitzvahs did not take place in the time of Jesus. But uh, a, a powerful example of a way to communicate a theme uh, in a way that that takes liberties with the narrative, but does so in an effective and uh, it had a, a real impact on me. The next moment that I want to talk about, um, and, and this is going to lead me into uh, something that I probably should have talked about in casting. Uh, I mentioned that Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino were uh, considered for the role of Jesus of Nazareth, but the role ultimately went to a British actor uh, who had mostly done uh, live stage work up to that point named Robert Powell. Robert Powell's look and his general, like if you were to Google Robert Powell as Jesus right now, you would be presented with a very familiar look of Jesus. It's the, it's the, the white face, the blue eyes, the look that we know uh, we know is not what Jesus would have looked like. Jesus would have uh, looked like a common Middle Eastern man. Uh, I understand the sensitivity behind the white-faced, blue-eyed Jesus. I know that uh, that it's not accurate, and I know that there's some sensitivity behind its existence. 
Um, I, I wanted to acknowledge that. But if you were to look up Robert Powell as Jesus, you'll be presented with the the common sort of traditional look, uh, very heavily influenced by uh, a painting that I think is called The Head of Christ. It's a it's a painting that is prominently featured in a lot of um, older churches in their vestibules. Uh, but but it is it's a very common look. And that's one of the things that I think people have criticized about this film is Robert Powell's general look and his general appearance. Uh, he has piercing blue eyes, and he almost never blinks in the film. This was intentional on Zeffirelli's part. He wanted Christ to have a somewhat otherworldly quality to him. And Robert Powell seriously has just some of the bluest eyes you're ever likely to find on a human being. So it pierces through, and uh, it, it's, it definitely stands out amidst the, amidst the rest of the actors. But he also occasionally acts as if he is quite aloof, as if he is deep in thought, deep in prayer, uh, as if his mind is somewhere else. And I do believe on a personal level that Jesus would have been much more engaged in the world around him than we see in Robert Powell's performance. But all of those criticisms aside, Robert Powell is an outstanding actor, and he he communicates so much in the delivery of some of these lines, uh, there are interpretations here of things that Jesus said that I have never seen displayed. One of the most prominent ones to me is uh, there's a moment in Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, uh, I believe it's chapter 24, where uh, Jesus just goes off on the Pharisees and just calls them a bunch of names. Gets the, the language is very violent. The the tone of the text of the scriptures is very violent. But Jesus is always presented as a somewhat passive individual, and he definitely has those moments in this film. But there is a moment in this where uh, the Pharisees confront him for you know the dozenth time about having healed a blind man, and Jesus goes. Off. I mean, the veins are sticking out in Robert Powell's forehead. Uh, he, 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 like I said, he rarely blinks. So these piercing blue eyes are just uh, firing out at the screen as his voice gets very impassioned and very loud. It's a, it's a, it's an incredible moment, and it's something that is uh, probably one of the few times, if any, where I've actually seen the Jesus that I see represented in the Bible, who did have a tendency to get a bit adamant and uh, get a bit aggressive in his language, presented on screen. And uh, so that's something that I would really praise Robert Powell's performance for. It is also a very sensitive performance. It's it's a performance that I really appreciate and that I respect a great deal, even though I understand some of the criticisms about the aloofness or about uh, the whitewashing. I, I recognize those criticisms. I recognize those complaints. But I still think that this performance is absolutely outstanding. And uh, it's the one that I still measure all performances uh, of Jesus by. So uh, this is uh, a moment. Uh, the next moment that I want to talk to you about is one of my favorite moments in Robert Powell's entire performance. But to do so, I'm going to have to, to set up something for you. And I know we're already running about a half hour. I'll try to wind this down in the next five or ten minutes, if you'll bear with me. One of the most impressive things from a character standpoint that this film does is with the characters of Matthew, the tax collector, and Peter. Um, when we see both of these people, when we meet them for the first time, Matthew is a tax collector. He cares about money. He cares about pleasures of life. And that's it. He's bored of his job. He's a bit greedy. And, uh, and he, he's just a little bit of a, uh, of a slime ball. 
Peter himself is very aggressive, has a tremendous temper, uh, and uh, is a drunk, to be honest. He is he's a very uh, aggressive, borderline violent man. Uh, even when he first meets Jesus, he's, he's very aggressive towards him. Um, and James Ferentino, again, just a powerhouse performance. But Matthew and Peter in the film are not only enemies by proxy of their of their social station, but they are direct enemies. Matthew uh, frequently sort of goads Peter and and bleeds him for more money when he has a big catch. And Peter deeply resents Matthew. <laughs> One of my favorite lines uh, in the film is when uh, Matthew introduces himself to Jesus. He says, uh, Matthew is my name, or Levi. I'm known by both names. And Peter says, and by others, <laughs> which I think is uh, a really clever line. So Peter and Matthew are direct enemies. After Jesus uh, has a miracle where a number of fish are caught and Peter catches a big fi- a big catch of fish, Peter invites Jesus back into his home. Matthew invades this invitation uh, for the chance to meet Jesus. Peter is offended, kicks him out of his house, but Jesus says, why don't I come to your house instead, to Matthew, which deeply offends Peter. And that's a great moment. You should see it. Look it up uh, or see the film. See the film. But that deeply offends Peter, and Jesus says, I'm going to travel to Matthew's house. So the night that Jesus travels to Matthew's house, uh, Peter gets fully drunk, just full-blown drunk, and falls asleep out in his boat, uh, in his fishing boat. Jesus, meanwhile, is at the house of Matthew. Matthew is very humbled by the fact that Jesus would come and eat with him, and uh, he wants to just give Jesus a good meal and a good time, but uh, the people there want Jesus to teach something. They want him to say something, and so Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Jesus says, I'll tell you a story. Uh, it is in that moment that Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And as he's telling the story, uh, a wonderful performance by Robert Powell again, Peter awakens, drifts closer to Matthew's house, and begins quietly listening uh, to it. And it's it's a bit comical because a number of Jesus' disciples and a number of religious leaders and a number, a number of busybodies in the town are standing right outside Matthew's house. They won't dare walk in. They won't dare walk in and be seen in the house of a tax collector. <laughs> they will not uh, go there, but they're curious to see what's going to happen. So they're waiting right outside. Peter joins this crowd, and Jesus finishes um, a beautiful and lovely rendition of the story of the prodigal son. And when he finishes telling that story, then Peter, so moved by what he's heard and on the verge of tears, bursts into Matthew's house, walks right into Matthew's house and um, asks very um, impassionedly for, uh, but, su- but, but in a restrained way, um, he asks for Jesus's forgiveness and he asks for Matthew's forgiveness. Uh, Matthew and Peter are reconciled in that moment. And what I love, even though the moment itself is pretty powerful, what I love about that moment is that for the, for the rest of the film, Matthew and Peter are kind of confidants. They, they share a few scenes away from the rest of the disciples where they converse with each other about the lives that they used to live and, and what lies ahead of them. And they speculate and they ask questions and they challenge each other. Uh, so they become like best of friends uh, coming out of that. And I thought, what a lovely touch to, to bring to those two characters that you wouldn't normally associate. So it, again, hearkening back to the script, the direction, the performances, it's really outstanding. I have just a couple more moments that I want to mention to you, and uh, and then I'll, I'll I'll wind this down. 
there's there's a number of things that I probably don't even have time to go into. Just uh, there are some I mentioned earlier about Mary Magdalene and the Centurion. There's also foreshadowing with the character of Barabbas, who's played by Stacy Keach. Um, there's foreshadowing with the two thieves. We see them before we see them on the crosses. Um, and also one character that absolutely exists nowhere in Scripture um, was created specifically for this film, for this telling of the story named Zara. Zara is played by Ian Holm. And he is a sort of surrogate for the perspective of the religious elite of the time against Jesus. Um, Unlike several other characters who just dismiss Jesus, get very angry right out of the gate at Jesus, Zara is much more contemplative, and he's much more curious about Jesus. Ian Holmes, obviously, a really skillful actor, and he brings a lot of nuance to the performance. But he's very curious about Jesus. He's he wonders uh, exactly what to make of him. Can he capitalize or manipulate Jesus somehow? Uh, should he try to eliminate this threat? What should he try to do? And Zara himself, uh, in this interpretation of the story, is largely the reason why Judas ultimately betrays Jesus. Zara is the one who convinces him to do so. Convinces him by saying, you know, basically, if Jesus is who he says he is, he'll be fine. And if he's not who he says he is, you'll have been directly responsible for ridding Israel of just another false prophet. Um, So Zara is a great example of a way that they've taken, not only have they changed things in the text of the Bible, they've introduced a character who was nowhere in the scriptures, but allowed for a number of different uh, interpretive thematic moments. And he has one of my, uh, again, one of my favorite moments in the film after Jesus has resurrected. Uh, It's almost the final moment of the film. After Jesus has resurrected, Zara races down to the tomb where there are some religious leaders, some members of the Sanhedrin, and some Roman soldiers there waiting. And they argue for a few moments about how someone must have stolen the body, how how this this had to have been a thievery. It couldn't have been a resurrection. And then Zara cautiously steps down into the tomb and sees the, the, grave co- the grave clothes lying there with no body. And he looks, and of course the music is, is creating a mood. Uh, the score, by the way, by uh, Maurice Jarret, um, a really powerful score. Look it up if you can. But Zara makes his way down into the tomb, and when he looks at this empty, this empty grave, he says, almost whispers to himself, Now it begins. It all begins. And he says so, Not in, he's not being converted. Um, he's also not spitting bile out. It's just a recognition or an acknowledgement that all of his efforts to control, contain, and manipulate this man have failed. And now uh, it has grown to a place where it is far beyond anybody else's control. Now it all begins. And uh, it, it's a powerful moment. It's a rich moment. Uh, it's it's incredible. Uh, I know I'm gushing over this film, and <laughs> I know that I uh, am just pouring out heaps and heaps of praise on the movie. But uh, but obviously, it's very important to me. It's a it's a film that I love and that I want you to love. But uh, the the last thing that I will mention is the final uh, before right before that scene with Zara is a culmination of a number of things I've been talking about, uh, and then I'll bring in one scripture and I'll I'll say goodbye. Um, the resurrection itself is not really shown. Uh, we are shown an empty tomb, as I mentioned in that scene with Zara, but the resurrection itself is not really shown. Instead, uh, following the crucifixion, uh, we see the disciples in an upper room, and of all people, 
Mary Magdalene, uh, who, again, played by Anne Bancroft, has become uh, an anchor for us. Uh, she makes her way into the room, and she tells all of the disciples uh, about how she has seen the resurrected Jesus and what happened. She tells the story. She delivers it beautifully. It's a very sensitive moment. And when she says this, it's clear nobody believes her. Nobody wants to just tell her she's crazy, but it's clear nobody believes her. And John, John the Beloved, begins to gently try to usher her out. Mary's getting offended. Uh, she's starting to get a bit aggressive, and uh, and he, he tries to just gently get her to leave. Uh, when Thomas, uh, out of the corner of his mouth, just uh, mumbles something about women's fantasies, and in that moment, Anne Bancroft goes off. <laughs> she flies off the handle uh, in, a, in a wonderfully scripted, uh, wonderfully performed moment. Uh, she says, you know, fantasy was his death a fantasy. Where were you when he died? I was there. I wept at his feet. Why wouldn't he come and show himself to me? What do you know of, of fantasy? Um, and and then she leaves. She's mad. She's she's done with the disciples. She's leaving. And when she leaves, John sort of calls Thomas out by saying, like, hey, man, that that was not okay <laughs> that you did that you know you didn't believe you would never have believed it of course you wouldn't have believed it you've never believed anything that we've seen with our own eyes and then thomas calls him out and says like oh you believe her oh is that what it is you be <laughs> you believe her story and then he starts calling out all the rest of the disciples does anybody here believe it do any of you do you matthew do you james uh d do any of you believe her story and then he gets to peter and he says do you believe it and Peter whispers so soft you almost can't hear it. He says, yes, I do. And then when Thomas says, how can you? And then Peter says, because he told us it would be this way. And then Thomas says, Peter, you, you denied him. What are you talking about? You denied him three times. And now it's Peter's turn to go off. Peter just delivers one of the most powerful and impactful speeches I've ever heard in any biblical narrative. And, uh, and he talks about denying what we know to be true. And he talks about uh, how, you know, at least the Romans and the members of the Sanhedrin didn't know Jesus. He said, but we knew him. We accused Judas of being a traitor, but we all betrayed him. We all abandoned him. We knew who he was and still we betrayed him. Still we ran away. And, uh, and he, he delivers just an incredible speech. And then when he softens down and uh, he, he hugs Thomas and he says, you asked me if I believe he's risen. I do, uh, because I know in my heart he will never abandon us. And uh, again, I'm a believer, so I get very emotional even, even saying that moment. Uh, it's a wonderfully scripted moment, a wonderfully realized moment that I've now incredibly spoiled for you. Um, but even my saying it uh, cannot dilute the power of, of James Farentino's performance or of, that, of the construction of that scene in general. So I wanted to mention one scripture uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 34, uh, it simply says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. It can be really easy for us uh, if we're believers and if we hold the text of Scripture as sacred. Uh, we see filmmakers make an interpretation. Uh, uh, Darren Aronofsky makes Noah, uh, takes a, a wide array of liberties with it. Ridley Scott makes Exodus, uh, which I actually haven't even seen. Um, but 
there's these different films. They succeed on varying levels. Some of them succeed almost not at all. Some of them succeed in some ways, but not in others. And some of them succeed very well. But what I want to encourage uh, you, the listener, to do, if if you're still with me, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. The first thing that I want to encourage you to do is I want to encourage you to see this film. (laughs) I have uh, mentioned uh, a lot of different moments. I I haven't even touched on Laurence Olivier as Nicodemus or James Mason as Joseph of Arimathea or, for crying out loud, Rod Steiger as Pontius Pilate delivering one of the best interpretations of Pilate I've ever seen. Please see this movie. Carve out... Uh, If you can't do it in one setting, I know it's six and a half hours, but carve out a couple of evenings around Easter or around Christmas or whenever you feel like it and see this film. Uh, It really is very rewarding. Try, if you can, to see it uh, not on broadcast because I've noticed that sometimes when they air it uh, on like TBN or the History Channel, uh, oddly enough, they speed up the frame for about like one one or one and a half percent, uh, I guess, to fit into the broadcast restrictions. But it's definitely worth seeing in its original vision, in Zeffirelli's original vision. Uh, So definitely you should see this film. So that was the first reason I wanted to talk about it was to compel you to see it. The second reason uh, relates back to the scripture that I said, because Jesus spoke in parables, and I kind of view any time we're going to take the text of a biblical narrative and turn it into a, a piece of film that we are presenting a parable. Yes, we are presenting something that is uh, based in what we believe to be true, but we are presenting a, a parable, and it's something that I think we should remain open to allowing artists to take some liberties with it. There would be people who would be very offended by some of the uh, nothing. None of the moments that I have highlighted for you actually took place in Scripture. I mean, Jesus really did tell the story of the prodigal son, but it didn't happen in Matthew's house with Peter waiting out right outside and a reconciliation take place. None of that happened. (laughs) But this story is presented in such a way that that thematically delivers the gospel in a way that I don't think a literal adaptation would have. And um, I want us to remain open. I want us to remain receptive and allow artists to be artists. Allow them to tell stories. Let storytellers tell the story that they want to tell. And uh, then we can gauge for ourselves if that story was effective or if it wasn't. Um, but I want us to remain open because essentially uh, movies are, are, are parables. They are parables that present to us uh, ideas about ourselves, ideas about the world around us, ideas about faith, about uh, doubt, uh, ideas uh, that run the spectrum of human emotion and human experience. And um, we should remain open to parables, even and most especially parables uh, adapted from biblical literature. Um, I definitely think that Jesus of Nazareth is a film worthy of consideration. I think it's criminally under-talked about. I think it's uh, everybody that I know who has seen it uh, highly praises it, but I think it is underviewed because of its age and because of its length. Uh, and I would love in some small way to change that. So I want to thank you all very, very much for listening. Uh, I've stumbled through a, a few of these things and perhaps not been as organized as I would have liked to be. But I want to thank you all very much if you've listened to the end of this for taking the time. And I want to thank Tyler for allowing me the opportunity to talk about this film. And uh, I hope you all have uh, a wonderful week, a wonderful day, uh, and a wonderful anything (laughs) that that you have ahead of you. And uh, so thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time.